This episode of the Real-Time History Podcast is sponsored by Nebula. Subscribe to Nebula to listen to this podcast and watch all our Real-Time History videos earlier and ad-free. You also get access to exclusive historical deep-dive documentaries like our World War II series 16 Days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 on the dramatic and decisive final stage of the Second World War. Sign up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash Real-Time History Podcast for just $30 for an entire year and support this show. I'm Indy Nidell, and this, once again, is the Great War Podcast. Now, in the background behind me is Flo, our producer. Say hi, Flo. Hi. So you might hear him chime in from time to time, and he's very important. But who's even more important today is our guest. Our guest today is Aaron Pegram. He's a historian. He works for the Australian War Memorial. Now, we have had him before as a guest, but we thought him so fascinating that we thought we'd have him again because today is a day that we may wish to talk about certain events that happened today and led into other things. And that's enough of me talking. Aaron, can you say hello to all the people out there who are not your friends on Facebook and so they don't know what we're going to talk about? And then let's get talking, okay? Okay. Hi, guys. Uh, it's good to be back on the show. I'm, uh, I'm a longtime supporter of both the YouTube uh, channel and also the podcast. So, so to everybody involved in, in both of those enterprises, congratulations for your success and, and sort of delivering, uh, teaching us about the First World War in a very new and engaging way. Well, you can I, you can imagine how much fun it is to actually do this. I mean, it's been it's uh, I can't believe it's it's nearly we've been doing this for four years. That's I mean, that's just crazy when you think about it. Uh, you know, an acting job that's four years long, a writing job that's four years long, a history job that's four years long, and it's the same job. You know, yeah. and the duration this it goes for the duration of the First World War itself. So, and uh, no doubt in many respects, you've also been refighting the First World War on many fronts. Oh yes, uh, yes, very, very, very much so. Um, but it's a uh, when I think how long we've been doing this channel, that's you sort of realize how long the war actually really went. You say you say four years. That doesn't sound that long, but it feels that long when you're actually writing it week after week after week. Now uh, we are here at the end of May in our world in 1918, and so I'll ask you now at the end of May in in 2018, what is special about just today? So uh, today is a, is a fairly significant day in the history of the Australian Imperial Force as the Australian forces are, are known during the First World War because on, on this day, 100 years ago, uh, Lieutenant General Sir John Monash is uh, appointed commander of the, of the recently uh, formed Australia Corps, which comprises of five infantry divisions. And uh, that's significant for a number of reasons, primarily because uh, in Australia, Monash is revered as this uh, as, as a this significant Australian who led the Australia Corps through its most successful camp- successful campaign of the war. Um, I mean, you guys have, have spoken about uh, the Australians uh, on the YouTube channel and then also on the podcast. But um, to, to give to give you a sense of where Australia was in 1914. Uh, we were a very young nation. Australia had only just federated 13 years before. Uh, we had a, a permanent uh, military in Australia, although it was very, very small. We had uh, a citizens' military force in Australia, uh, which was for home defence only. So when um, 
Britain declares war on Germany in August 1914. Australia is automatically at war, but we don't actually have an army that we can send overseas. So in 1914, we have a very uh, we, we have a newly formed military force that's referred to as the Australian Imperial Force, uh, comprised entirely of volunteers, and that's uh, that's that remains so through the duration of the war. Uh, we fight on Gallipoli uh, and on the Western Front, and also in the Middle East uh, in Sinai and Palestine. And uh, generally, uh, by 1918, the Australians had suffered over, uh, I think it's a 230,000 battle casualties, uh, and which includes 60,000 war dead. But what's significant about 1918 is that um, we, the Australians are no longer fighting under British command. We'd started the war uh, with uh, one infantry division, and by 1916, the Australian forces had expanded to, to five infantry divisions, which all goes and see combat on the Western Front. We fight uh, on the Somme uh, in 1916 at Pozieres and Mouquet Farm. Uh, we're involved in the, in the pursuit of the Germans during their withdrawal to the Hindenburg Line. Some fairly nasty actions at uh, around Boulecourt in April and May 1917. Uh, at Messines in, in June uh, 1917. And then, of course, during the, the, uh, the infamous Battle of Ypres. Uh, and there, in just a space a period of, of eight weeks, the Australians suffer over 38,000 casualties and their largest losses of the war. Um, 1918 is a real game changer because uh, we are now fighting as a as a as a core. Um, those five infantry divisions had been grouped together in late 1917. Uh, the Australians were fortunately spared the full weight of the German Spring Offensive. We were still holding parts of the line uh, up near Ypres. Uh, uh, after the Third Battle of Ypres when the German Spring Offensive hit British uh, Third and Fifth Armies on the Somme. And some of the Australian brigades are rushed south to, to help defend uh, Amiens during the German spearhead towards Amiens as part of Operation Michael. So the Australians, um, they play a, a significant role in terms of the Allied offensive that's fought by British Fourth Army. Uh, we heard from David Boris on the on the podcast uh, a few months ago about the role of the Canadians, uh, who and from uh, from late night from mid nineteen eighteen onwards, the Canadians and the Australians uh, play a, a significant role in spearheading that offensive uh, on the British Fourth Army front along the Somme River. Um, there's also the British Third Corps to the north and also to the French much further south. Um, but Monash is revered as this nas great national hero in Australia because, as some of the popular writers have recently said, he won the war. He is, he is Australia's uh, greatest uh, senior commander who uh, who harnessed all the, the uh, who, who led the Australians through the, the most significant victories and, and probably single-handedly did more to ensure the Australians played a, a significant role in those in those victories uh, in the latter half of 1918. Um, now, when he uh, when he was given command over what 200,000 Australians or something uh, 100 years ago, there were a lot of there's a lot of pushback against that though. There were a lot of people that did not want him in command. Yes. That's right. I mean, um, Monash is a is an odd character in in many respects. But uh, some of the popular uh, sentiment in Australia recently, uh, there's been um, sort of uh, a, an undercurrent of uh, a movement uh, against sort of elevating Monash to, uh, to 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 for greater recognition here in Australia. Uh, documentaries have have sort of uh, labelled him the forgotten Anzac, um, and uh, you know he's. 
popular histories have, have considered him as the outsider who won the war. And this all stems from the way in which he was portrayed, or the way in which he was uh, he was dealt with by other other uh, by other Australian senior commanders in during the war years. Monash uh, is a first generation Australian. He's uh, his parents were uh, from from Prussia, and they were from uh, had uh, they were they were Jewish, and they emigrated to Australia in the 1850s. And um, this uh, Monash's Prussian Jewish heritage uh, really sort of uh, it doesn't sit too favourably in uh, in Australia in 1914 in the German mass German uh, sort of anti-German sentiment in the country at the time. Monash, as a civilian, as a very bright and very capable uh, Australian commander by 1914, uh, he's a an exceptional. He's a civilian engineer in his in his uh, in his civilian life. He has over 30 years' experience in the civilian military forces. And in 1914, when the Australian Imperial Force is formed, he is uh, he's a colonel and he is given command of the of the fourth, uh, fourth, the Australian Fourth Brigade, which which fights on Gallipoli, there's um, there's some sort of scepticism and rumour in Australia and in in Egypt and also in London that Monash was a spy. <laughs> uh, rumours had circulated that he had been arrested and shot as such, and this this certainly wasn't the case at all. Um, the uh, hey, it'd be, it'd be an amazing like 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 coup for us if today's podcast you said. New evidence has come to light saying that John Monash was in fact a spy and was in fact executed in 1914 and the other guy was an imposter. So, I mean, John Monash certainly does uh, attract a fair deal, a fair, a fair amount of criticism uh, from his contemporaries in 1914. And throughout the duration of the war, the Australian war correspondent and later official historian Charles Bean uh, was really had took a disliking to to Monash uh, even as his corps commander uh, in, in the lead up to him being appointed to corps commander. Um, Bean had some fairly traditional, had some fairly archaic views of of people with Jewish Jewish characteristics. Uh, he thought that Monash was self seeking, a self promoter, uh, was was hungry for decoration and recognition. Uh, and you know these attitudes did exist at the time, but uh, it didn't it certainly didn't stop Monash from becoming the great commander that he was. I mean, uh, in 1914, as I said, uh, he he was a brigade commander. He led uh, the fourth brigade on Gallipoli during the fighting on Gallipoli with some mixed success. But he also commanded the third Australian division from 1916 through to 1917 on the Western Front, uh, fighting at Messines and Passchendaele, and there he became. Uh, Quite well known for his meticulous planning, uh, and perhaps that's an extension of his his civilian life as as a as an engineer. Um, and uh, in in ni- in late nineteen seventeen, early eighteen, where it became clear that the uh, the five Australian infantry divisions would be regrouped to re- to form the Australia Corps. Uh, Monash is is Monash is probably one of the only only sort of uh, commanders that the Australian Imperial Force has. That's both Australian and has command experience uh, at, at, uh, at commanding an infantry division. The the other contender is uh, a General Cyril Brudenell White, who is the the chief of staff of Sir William Birdwood, the the the, 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 the then the Australia Corps commander, a British general. Uh, but of course, he doesn't have uh, doesn't have command experience of an infantry division. So. Much has been said about uh, the, the, the prejudice and the, the sort of undercurrent of uh, dissatisfaction that potentially a Prussian Jew would, uh, would would command the Australia Corps in 1918. 
it certainly doesn't stop Monash from from reaching that um, that that command position. He's a very fine. He has a proven track record of being a very fine and very capable uh, and very skilled commander. Uh, he's uh, he's one of those uh, senior commanders who uh, is willing to willing to learn and adopt new technologies, such as uh, the use of tanks and, and aircraft and and new art- artillery methods and doctrine, and the way in which that can fit into the way uh, the way in which the infantry carry out their attack. And I think that's a that's a very significant uh, very significant um, uh, quality to have in a senior commander. Um, it's also been said that Monash um, uh, won the war and that his tactics employed uh, during the Battle of Hamel and also during the fighting at uh, Amiens on the 8th of August 1918 was sort of the antecedent of the Blitzkrieg tactics used by the, the Fairmarkt in, uh, in Europe during the Second World War, and that's absolute nonsense. Um, Monash certainly did not invent the way in which uh, the the British Army were fighting by 1918, but he certainly benefited from the tactical lessons uh, and the new technologies that had been learned by the British Expeditionary Force as a whole uh, between 1914 and 1918, and perhaps um, you know Australians consider. Hamel, this great turning point in the war, because from there onwards, the Australians play a significant part in the Fourth Army's successes on the Western Front. Um, but uh, perhaps other historians would argue the Battle of Cambrai uh, and, and other actions uh, that, that where the British Army had achieved a breakthrough were, were far more important on a tactical level. So these are some of the issues that are kicking around in Australia at the moment. But, um, I mean, what's really interesting is that during the, the length of the, the, the duration of the First World War centenary, it would be fair to say that most Australians, um, you know, when they thought of the First World War, they probably would have thought of Gallipoli. Uh, but now, when, uh, when Australians think of the, you know, the fighting in the First World War, they probably think of the Western Front. But uh, the, the real sort of uh, threat here is that perhaps the pendulum may have swung the, way, swung the other way. And that uh, through by looking at John Monash and his successes, that perhaps the Australians have we have this uh, the real sort of threat there of, of overstating our importance in the fighting on the Western Front. So um, yeah. Well, let's uh, let's talk for a minute about Hamel, and because that was only what five five and six weeks after Monash uh, took command, and it it is uh, I think it is fairly important for not. Th- necessarily as a turning point for the war on the whole, but as a showcase for combined uh, a com- combined doctrine, a combined defensive doctrine. Can you talk about um, what actually happened there as opposed to what the myth's about, uh, Hamel? Yeah, sure. Okay. So um, for those of you uh, who are playing at home, uh, Hamel is, or Le Hamel, is this tiny little village in the Somme uh, region of, of northern France, and it's just uh, about about three or four kilometres east of the town of Villers-Bretonneux. And for, for much of the war, uh, Le Hamel and Villers-Bretonneux had been very much in the rear of the of the British uh, the British rear area. Um, the front line in 1916 was 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 probably about. 15 to 20 kilometres away, but um, this whole area becomes of, of critical importance. Um, Mainly because the Germans achieved their decisive, uh, uh, or achieve a major breakthrough on the on the uh, the British Fifth Army front, uh, and they they get to within almost artillery 
the uh, sort of uh, artillery range of the city of Amiens. I mean, from uh, from Villers Bretonneau, from Hill 104, just north of Villers Bretonneau, you can actually see Amiens. That's how close the Imperial German Army actually got to uh, to not only just capturing Amiens, but also uh, you know from from Hill 104, you and you can see it. That means you can shell it and disrupt the vital supply line between the British and French armies. So as I said uh, before, I mean, the Australians are in Belgium uh, during the German Spring Offensive, but various brigades are rushed south to help defend uh, parts, of the, parts of the line. And uh, when, the Ger- when Operation Michael sort of runs its course, uh, the, the frontline positions on this particular front uh, are around the, the, the villas bretonneau hamel area. Um, in May 1918, uh, this becomes this area is, is given uh, the Australian Corps is given responsibility for this for this sector, um, and we're right up against the Somme River on uh, the Australian Corps front. Actually, it sits astride the Somme River between Albert and, and Villers Bretonneux. What's happening uh, at this point is uh, sort of a whole series of minor engagements along the line as the line begins to settle. And uh, in July 1918, uh, Monash conducts what's referred to as the Battle of Hamel, and it's fought on the 4th of July 1918, uh, and it involves uh, a small number of American American infantry. Uh, it obviously involves uh, elements of the Australia Corps. Uh, it involves massive amounts of artillery from British and French and Australian artillery units. It involves the British Tank Corps and about uh, 60 of the brand spanking new Mark V tanks uh, and air assets from uh, the Australian Flying Corps and the Royal Air Force, uh, which in essence uh, are all operating together to straighten a slight bend in the line. So this battle is is made along a six-kilometre front and the intention is to straighten the line by advancing two kilometres. And that's it. We're not trying to achieve a decisive breakthrough because the lessons of the past have taught us that when we do finally achieve a, a decisive breakthrough, uh, it's very difficult to to bring up stores of supplies and and and, uh, and and resupply troops who have achieved that breakthrough and bring up fuel for tanks, uh, but also leaves assaulting units prone to German counterattack. So Hamel is uh, is is not uh, sort of the antecedent of Blitzkrieg. We have a very definite objective line. Um, Monash plans this operation to last 90 minutes and uh, at zero hour at, uh, at 3.10 a.m. on the 4th of July 1918, um, everything goes according to plan. Uh, the infantry are where they're supposed to be, the tanks do what they're supposed to do, uh, the Australian Flying Corps and the Royal Air Force uh, are dropping ammunition uh, boxes by parachute to a designated uh, uh, positions on the ground. Uh, the infantry sweep over and take their objectives, and it's all over in 93 minutes. So it's a very stunning success for the Australia Corps, uh, who are for the very first time fighting under an Australian commander uh, who has a proven track record for meticulous planning, uh, for harnessing uh, new and innovative uh, technologies and, and also uh, new tactics as well. So the successes at Hamel uh, go back into to what uh, what Flo has been referring to as the feedback loop uh, as part of the British Expeditionary Forces tactical uh, learning and development and uh, goes on to play uh, an important role in the way in which senior commanders are thinking about how they're going to be conducting the main or the main uh, main offensive effort at Amiens 
on the 8th of August, 1918. So, I mean, that's what ultimately happens. Uh, Hamel, by, you know, in Australia, it's by some popular historians have referred to it as the 93 minutes that changed the world. I mean, that's a, that's a massive overreach and that just simply is not true. Now, uh, just a side note, um, when you mentioned the supply drop there, I read in, in Martin Gilbert that that was the first uh, supply drop done during, uh, during an actual battle. Is that correct? Do you know if there are... Well, uh, well, yeah, look, uh, it's not. The short answer is no, it's not. I mean, the, okay. the Royal Air Force uh, so, or the Royal Flying Corps had been uh, developing or at least, at least been thinking about aerial resupply uh, since 1915, and in fact, there's, there's actual aerial resupply of British ground troops at Kut in Mesopotamia in 1916. Um, there is uh, evidence to suggest that uh, the Germans, uh, the German uh, air, air service, had had dropped ammunition, rations, uh, and grenades to uh, ground troops during their offensive uh, uh, in Flanders in May in May uh, 1918. And certainly at, at, at Hamel, uh, Monash uh, is, is fairly keen for uh, one of the, the one of the, uh, an inventor in one of the, in the third, third, um, uh, th number three squadron Australian flying corps to develop a method for dropping ammunition to ground troops via parachute. So this is one of the, the misnomers and myths about the, the about um, the, about the, the fighting at Hamel. Um, I find it quite interesting that there is this almost parallel sense of parallel development. I mean, uh, at, at Hamel, Monash is probably informed by the German use of ammunition resupply during the offensives, which indicates that perhaps uh, the British arm, the British Expeditionary Force as a whole was learning some of its tactical lessons from the Germans. Um, but I, I think uh, the whole notion of this, this whole tactic of ammunition resupply by air is, is a little bit overcooked because as part of the infantry assault uh, are those 50 tanks. And some of those tanks, uh, I think there's about four of them, are supply tanks. And they're, they're obsolete Mark V tanks which don't carry any guns and they've got in big white letters on, written on the side supply. Uh, and they're carrying up more uh, water for machine guns, ammunition, medical supplies and trench stores than what three or four RE8s uh, uh, involved in this particular action are able to actually drop from the air. So yet again, it's the tanks that, uh, that assist the infantry, uh, not, uh, not, not air, air power. Very good that we talked about this just now because we, we, we've got filming today and tomorrow and we will be filming those July episodes and that would be... Uh... It's good to, good to know so I don't say something, I don't actually say something that's not entirely true. Um, but it's funny because um, I like, uh, I love reading Gil, Martin Gilbert, The First World War. I think he's got a lot of great anecdotes. Um, what I've discovered is a few of them you do have to take with a grain of salt or have to do a little digging into. Brilliant book for stories, though. Absolutely, you know. Oh, yeah, look, uh, I mean, um, like, uh, I mean, every every sort of, Dominion of the British British Expeditionary Force, and I'm sure this is like many uh, many of the listeners and uh, viewers of the podcast. Each every nation probably has this little sort of association with the First World War, and that was their contribution to the war. Um, you know, and uh, I I was because we're leading up to the centenary of the fighting at Hamel, and because 
the Australians are so passionate and uh, about uh, they're, they're staking their claims on uh, on the actions they fought in 1918. I'm very interested in actually teasing apart some of these myths and actually having a look at, say, for example, the tactics that are employed at Hamel. When were they first used? Um, another one is the the clever use of uh, of the obsolete aircraft uh, to, to sort of fly over the German lines and, and create enough noise that it masks the sound of tank engines. Um, that's, that perhaps is another, another one, uh, that is attributed to Monash and his, his meticulous planning. Um, but I was, uh, I was very, uh, very surprised to read, uh, in Nick Lloyd's recent book on Passchendaele, now your very first podcast episode, uh, he, he, re- he references, uh, that particular tactic to, um, the action on the Cockcroft um, at Polkapel in August 1917. The uh, the Royal Flying Corps had done just that at, at, in Belgium in 1917. And then certainly there was evidence to suggest the Royal Flying Corps was doing it at Combray in, uh, in November 1917. So, I mean, what I find interesting about this is that uh, the Australians, uh, as part of the British Expeditionary Force, are receptive to the same lessons that are being learned in other other formations the feedback loop that that flow is has been discussing previously uh and this is when it, the uh the the british expeditionary force as a whole is beginning to hit its stride it's beginning to 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 understand the importance of of firepower uh and the integrated use of armor and infantry uh and uh, and, and air assets and of course, the theory of attacks with a limited objectives, not to try and punch a hole through German lines and keep on going. It's just to, to go a little bit, that two kilometers, so that you don't bite off more than what you can chew. Oh, yeah. OK. Um, OK. Uh, let's, I'll say it like that then. And speaking of perhaps overinflating uh, what happened at a battle or its importance or the events of it, um, there's been a lot of that. We've seen a bunch of that in the comments about Villiers Bretonneau, actually, which happened a couple months before Hamel, before Monash was even uh, elevated to his, his, to overall command of the Australians. Um, what about that? What do what do people have to say about that now? Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Um, for for those of you who don't know a terrible lot about uh, the fighting at Villers Bretonneux, um, I mean, um, it's one of these actions that have fought during the during the final stages of, of Operation Michael. After the Germans, uh, German forces have overrun part of the British Fifth Army's uh, positions, and they're now within striking distance of Amiens. From that, from Hill 104, just north of Villers-Bretonneux, if the Germans could reach the top of it, they could see Amiens, and if they could see Amiens, that means they could shell it. The thing is. Um, Oh, before I get into that, I mean, uh, the Australians play uh, an important role in uh, the fighting around Villers Bretonneux. Uh, on the 24th of April, the uh, three uh, three German divisions carry out an assault with tanks uh, and succeed in capturing Villers Bretonneux, overrunning the British Eighth Division. And uh, the British Eighth Division are forced to withdraw, and the Germans have hunkered down. Um, there is a uh, uh, it's an engagement between the, the British tank corps and the uh, the German A7Vs, which are put into the line, and that in the end becomes the first uh, first tank on tank battle in in modern warfare. So, in some respects, Villers-Bretonneux is is very important for for that reason. 
Um, the Australians, as I said, uh, you know, spared the, the, the massive casualties uh, of the German Spring Offensive and two Australian brigades, uh, the 13th Brigade under Tom Glasgow and the 15th Brigade under, under uh, Pompey Elliott, um, carry out a very splendid counterattack and a very pincer-like manoeuvre and recapture the town from, from, uh, from German troops. Um, it's, it's actually quite, it's quite well known for its vicious bayonet fighting. And there's some very graphic accounts of the Australians, uh, attacking in the middle of the night, uh, under the illumination of flares and this ferocious roar on both sides of the village as they get stuck into the German units, then digging in at Villers Bretonneux. So the fighting, uh, involves those two Australian brigades on what is then the third anniversary of the Gallipoli landings. Another important sort of uh, ring for the Australians there, uh, and of course with some of the uh, some of the British troops who had been had been ejected from from the from the town, and they succeed in recapturing Villers Bretonneux. And the way in which Villers Bretonneux is talked about in Australia is uh, the Australians at Villers Bretonneux stopped the German Spring Offensive, and that is probably what Flo is talking about. I mean that uh, that's another misnomer. By the time the Australians uh, are ordered to to counterattack at Villers Bretonneux, uh, the German troops that are on the Somme that have been involved in Operation Michael, uh, their offensive is done. They cannot advance any further. Uh, not only have the Germans suffered enormous casualties, uh, mainly from NCOs and 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 and, and officers, uh, junior leaders who have been leading this offensive from the front. They've outstripped their supply lines. Uh, the German the German army has been undergoing material shortages for years now, uh, and uh, supplies and ammunition and reinforcements are not being brought up. They're simply unable to. And there's also a major failing in the German senior high command as well, who splintered their attack the German attacking forces. There may be some ground gained on one level. But then, uh, you know, the reinforcements that are designated for one particular sector are moved up to the north for another major effort. And then there's another switch. So, I mean, the German senior commanders rob any rob the offensive of any hope of success. So, so it's within this context that the Australians counterattack. We may seem to think that we've, you know, we've saved Amiens single-handedly because the British who were there, you know, uh, you know, were rubbish as the Australians tended to think that they were. Um, but, um, I mean, that's, that's not the case at all. The British troops who have been fought on the Somme, uh, who were forced to withdraw were actually proved a lot more resilient than what, uh, that, the, the popular, uh, accounts suggest. And, and absolutely the Australians play, uh, for a number of very successful defensive actions in that area, uh, at Dernancourt, for example, near Albert, uh, two understrength Australian brigades held off uh, an attack by three German divisions. Uh, in what was a very ferocious, uh, very vicious close quarter uh, engagement. There was some more fighting at a place called Hebertern and up in the north at Strazil. Uh, but by then, um, when we have a look at this, the, the higher direction of the war, I mean, the German offensive had, was pretty much spent. They they were not going to be coming, not to, not, they were in no position to be able to to capture Amiens. Uh, so, um, so, 
a part of part of uh, what I've been doing recently is been trying to situate the Australian experience in a much broader context as to what's been happening on the Western Front, not necessarily look at the Australian experience through the lens of a drinking straw, but what else was happening, uh, not just within the British Expeditionary Force, but all outside armies and, of course, the Imperial German Army. Well, this is, is something that we're, we've been trying to do for four years, to look at the whole, an even bigger picture of, what, 14 battlefronts and stuff? Um, no, but, uh, you know, I, you and I are friends on Facebook, so I saw when it was posted the video you posted last week. YouTube video. We'll have a link to that, right? So everybody can watch that. Everybody, you're going to have to watch that because it's really interesting. It's a great speech. As you can tell, he's a really good talker. You just turn him on and he just goes and goes and goes. Kind of like me, actually. Um, Flo, is there anything else we wanted to specifically discuss? Or Aaron, is there anything I'm forgetting? Mm, Did we talk about Mephisto the last time? Did we talk about Mephisto last time? I will No, we talked about it with Ralph Ratz, but that was... (laughs) Uh, yeah, but we can talk and say a few words about Mephisto if you like. I mean, you guys have it. <laughs> well, uh, well, uh, when when you say we, you guys, I mean, uh, it, Mephisto is a, an A7V uh, uh, tank, one of one of some twenty that were developed uh, during the latter by Germany during the latter stages of the war. My understanding is the German uh, wartime. Uh, Germany was was probably more keen at producing uh, submarines or U-boats uh, than what it was in in sort of embracing the idea of of tank technology. Um, I think what's interesting about Germany uh, during the during the First World War is uh, the um, its wartime economy. It's completely geared towards fighting this war on multiple fronts and does so at the expense of the needs of civilians at home. I mean, no one had anticipated the uh, the length and duration of the war. I mean, the war was supposed to be a very swift victory, uh, firstly against France and Britain and then against Russia. Uh, but, of course, it bogs down into a stalemate and then Germany's fighting a, mo- a war on multiple fronts for a long period of time, which then drains it of its ability to produce both tanks and submarines. It's either tanks or submarines. So anyway, long story short, Mephisto is one of these 20 A7V uh, uh, tanks which get produced during the war. And uh, if any of you have actually seen an A7V, it's not exactly it's not exactly a, a vehicle with a small profile. It's um, I think it's crewed by about 12 men, uh, and uh, it's bristling with uh, MG08 machine guns, uh, and and doesn't actually have a maximum speed. Uh, but anyway, one of uh, Mephisto was involved in the fighting around Villers Bretonneux, uh, and uh, where it engages, uh, where it's involved in, in, in breaking through part of that British line. Um, it's ultimately, uh, it ultimately be, get, gets ditched in a, in a shell hole, and its crew are unable to recover it, and then so they abandon it on the battlefield. Um, and so when the Australians take over part of the, the line around Villers Bretonneux, Mephisto is, is sort of out in no man's land. Uh, and it ultimately gets recovered by a Queensland uh, battalion. And the Queenslanders are, are very passionate about their ownership of Mephisto because uh, after the war, Mephisto was brought back to the Australia with the intention of coming back to the Australian War Memorial. Uh, it got off the dock uh, in Brisbane, uh, and because of that association, it remained in Queensland for for decades. And in fact, Mephisto um, 
it uh, formed part of the uh, the Queensland Museum, and it is now part of the Queensland Museum. But uh, the Queensland Museum were very generous enough to actually let the Australian War Memorial to loan Mephisto to the Australian War Memorial, where it could be viewed by people outside of Queensland. Outside of Queensland, <laughs> yeah, we did a we did a really fun special at the German Tank Museum with Ralph Ratz, the guy who's the, like the curator of the museum, on just the A7V. And uh, I, I'm just throwing that to everybody out there in, in, in listening land. You can totally search for that on our YouTube channel. It's very, very good. Yeah? The, the replica is built of the schematic, like of the measurements from Mephisto. Actually. Oh yeah, the replica of Mephisto that they have in the German Tank Museum is built from yeah. the schematics of the actual one that, that, that you guys yeah, have, uh, right? Uh, that, that, that doesn't surprise me whatsoever. I mean, um, while Mephisto was in Canberra, I, I had a, uh, I was very fortunate enough to be able to actually look inside and sit inside Mephisto. So we got to sit inside the replica. Yeah, well, that, actually. Yeah. So we both yeah, got yeah. it, yeah. No, um, yeah, that, that was a, that was a big eye opener. The A seven V stuff. Actually, yesterday I got given. Um, I think one of the best things about my particular job as the writer and host of the channel is that people give me stuff, war related stuff. And this guy that uh, was with us uh, on that trip, but about t t talking about rations and stuff, he, he made a A seven V Zippo for oh, me. Wow. He took a Zippo lighter and, and made a little A7V, and it's, it's glued on, so it looks like you bought it and stuff. But it's an A7V Zippo, and he says, however, it's not unique because he made himself one, oh, too. So there's That's two of cool. Them. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that was really, really nice. Um, uh, what else? Anything else, Flo? Okay, well, then I, I suppose I should do some kind of wrap-up. Is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't Yeah, look, mentioned? no, nothing, nothing special. But, uh, look, I'm, I'm going to be visiting France throughout uh, June and July uh, uh, in uh, the next, next couple of weeks. I'll be leading two commercial yeah. battlefield tours of the Western Front. Um, I'm always very keen to catch up with uh, people who listen to the podcast uh, and, uh, and talk shop whenever we're in the same location. So please, I mean, um, I'll be tweeting about my activities on the Western Front battlefields and places that I'll be visiting. Uh, it'll be great to actually catch up with some of the listeners and uh, and talk shop and perhaps refight the First World War over a few pints uh, in the evening. So um, yeah, more than happy to do that. Well, that's great, and I'll tell you what. One on our Facebook and stuff, we'll keep people posted as to your whereabouts too. So if anybody out there you want to meet Aaron firsthand and bend his ear with tales of, well. Stuff he probably knows a lot about already. You can certainly go and do that. Uh, Flo, you had something you want to say? Uh, is there a chance that his trip is going to last uh, until the 1st or 2nd of August? Yeah, is there a chance your trip will last until the 1st or 2nd I, of August? Sadly, I will be back on a plane from flying from Paris back to, uh, back to Sydney on the 27th of July. So... Uh. Because the 1st of August, uh, we're, we're going on the road again, and we'll be in France and Belgium and Britain uh, from the 1st to the 10th of August. Uh, oh, it'd be so great if we could actually do something in real life. Yeah. We'll have to do it one well, day, though. Like you know? land ships in the well. night, as they say. Aha. <laughs> uh -huh. You see what he did? At? You see what he did there, guys? World War I humor. <laughs> uh, it's brilliant. Um, okay, well, well, Aaron Fagram, thank you very, very much for taking time to talk to us again. And I guarantee we'll have him back another time later in the year. So if, you, if you're not tired of his voice, you'll hear him again in a few months. You can meet him on the Western Front in June and July. Um, he'll be tweeting about that. We'll definitely be tweeting and posting on Facebook when he tells us where he is. Uh, and I think that's about it for today. Um, well, 
Aaron, say goodbye to everybody. Bye, everybody, and thank you very much for listening to to this excellent podcast series. Uh, again, congratulations to Flo and Indy for 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 telling the very complex story of the First World War to a very wide and general audience. You guys are doing a fantastic job, so please keep up the good work. And with that complimentary note, I'll let everybody go. Okay, guys, uh, we'll talk to you all soon. All right, thanks, Aaron. See you.